World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the AmeriChicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to my World War II Project. This is Kim Munson and uh, just thrilled to bring these stories to you. As many of you know, uh, this whole show precipitated from a trip that I took in 2016 with a group that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. And uh, so returned and realized that we need to capture these stories. Each story is individual. Each story is special. And thrilled to have in studio with me today, John Henry Hotchkiss II. John, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So we met. I was uh, over at the place where you're living, and uh, we met. You were telling me that you're a World War II veteran, so I thought we need to get together and, and get you on the air. So it really is an honor to have you here. Uh, thank you. Okay. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up, John? Well, it's right outside of uh, Washington, D.C., Sea Pleasant, Maryland. But I was born in Washington, D.C. for two years. For two years. And before we went on air, you were explaining to me about the District of Columbia. You asked me if I knew what D.C. stood for, but you gave me a little history on District of Columbia. Explain that. When they were going to have a place for the capital of the United States, the uh, state of Maryland allotted this area for the capital, and they gave that ground, part of Maryland, to the federal people. And that's where they put the White House and everything else that goes with it. And, of course, that was before I was born. <laughs> and so you grew up outside of Washington, D.C. then? Yes, uh, I was right adjacent to Washington, D.C., close to the land that they gave. The name of the place was Sea Pleasant, Maryland. Well, John, you know, you're never supposed to ask a girl what her age is, but I'm going to ask you what, how old are you? <laughs> Right now, I'm 96, but in on the 17th, I'll be 97. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty awesome. So let's talk about how you grew up, and uh, uh, where were you when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Do you remember? Yes, I was in Washington, D.C. What went through your mind when you heard that? Well, I was listening to... The Japanese ambassador, well, not, I didn't hear him, but I knew he was in the White House talking to Franklin Roosevelt, and they were trying to get uh, together. And I, I know that he must have known that they were going to attack Pearl Harbor, and they were trying to avoid that. But I have information at home that I had that uh, was in a magazine, and Early before Pearl Harbor, they attacked the West Coast, a submarine, and they sunk one of our supply ships that was going to go to Honolulu. I did not know that. A lot of people don't know it, but I was wondering, because we had an ambassador negotiating in the White House, and at the same time, they sunk one of our ships. Mm -hmm. You never heard much about it. And they did send out a SOS. What happened to it, I don't know. But that was peacetime, and it makes me wonder what actually went on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think they 
they meant to take those measures before they even started negotiating. Mm-hmm. They had that all planned out. Oh, that, I think it was all a matter of time. I talked to a Japanese woman that lived down the street when I was over on the other side of Denver. I asked her what she thought about it, and she said, well, she thought that the United States was putting pressure on Japan, which was true. I mean, we cut off part of the metal and some of the other things that they would need, and I think the Japanese just decided they were going to take what they needed from the whole east there. They were going to just take everything, and they had a lot of things they could do it with, so... They had invaded China by that time, too, hadn't they? Oh, yeah. They, were, they went into Manchuria. Uh-huh. I talked to some of the Chinese, and they don't know what Manchuria is, so maybe they called it something else. Probably, yeah. But that's what we called it. So it was quite a surprise uh, when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. So what went through your mind? What did you decide that you were going to do about it? When I heard that, you know, I was uh, at my mother's place in Maryland, so I, I thought I'm going to go back, and I thought I would at this time I would go in the Air Force and we could try to become a pilot. So did you? Yes, I did, did do that. I enlisted in the Air Force. How old were you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I was 17. So how did you get in if you were 17 years old? I don't remember exactly probably don't want to remember, but uh, it took a while before because a lot of a lot of young men wanted to go in and fly, you know. But uh, anyway, finally, they called me, and we went by train from Washington, D.C. to uh, San Antonio, Texas, to the Cadet Center there. That's where we started the training. How was that? Was it tough or...? <laughs> It was it was unbelievable, you know. It was in the summertime in San Antonio. In San Antonio, they had the cadet center. They had the class system there, so we we went in in the lower class, and then you're supposed to be there to go to the upper class. But I think they were trying to instill discipline, going a little bit overboard, I thought. But <laughs> that was their thing. They had us hanging on the wall and put us in a brace. I don't know what you know what a brace is. You go into a posture of where you're stiff and like a piece of wood, and then they would come along and give you a push, and you were not supposed to put your hands back or anything. You had to oh, go back, and then they would catch you before your head hit the floor, hopefully. But uh, before I left there, they... They changed that somewhat because they had a lot of young men that were going to the hospital. <laughs> That's uh, not good. <laughs> well, in, and you don't know whether somebody's going to catch or not. And also, they put uh, hit a brace. And so you go into a brace, and it was hot, of course, in the summertime. And you're supposed to perspire, you know, in that brace. And... Unfortunately, I was close to the door, and they had a breeze come through, and so that just cooled you off enough so you couldn't perspire. And they would say, you're not trying, you know. Trying and, hard enough, huh? <laughs> and so I, I thought, okay, Lord, 
It's your turn to... Because <laughs> I can't do any more I'm doing. You're doing the best you can. That's huh? right. Okay. Well, any other stories when when you were in training? I've never heard that story before. That's a that's an interesting. Well, it it was very very tough, but I thought I hope they're satisfied. But anyway, no, I think it was uh, the only thing I can think is that's to instill di- a discipline. Sure, sure. When they tell you to do something, they want you to do it exactly like you're supposed to. The way, the way they told tell yeah, them to do it. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it was interesting, but. I know one night there, the lower class on the barracks I was in, we were about to go up and clean up on the upper class, but then we'd all been thrown out, so that didn't happen. But uh, Were uh, you just so frustrated with the upper class? Is that why you were going to do that, or just, well, just have something to do? Well, the upper class was the ones that come around and did the job on you, because they had been to the lower class. Okay. They, it was kind of taking care of you few like they got taken care of. Uh-huh. I had some of them that I liked, this, some of them I didn't like. I had one young man there that, uh, I don't know how old he was, but he said, uh, what's the best city in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm from San Antonio, and I said Washington, D.C. <laughs> of course, that one didn't go over well. That wasn't but, the answer he was looking uh, for, huh? No. <laughs> he knew that I hadn't been broken yet, so, uh-huh. and I thought, they're never going to do it, you know, but I believe in the discipline and all that, because I could have used that later on, but uh, we went through all that, and we had our different classes, and code, and, and uh, engines, and the whole thing, before we ever went to flying. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, once you got through all that... Uh, well, in my case, they sent us to uh, West Texas to a small airfield, and that's where we did a flying. Okay. And, uh, so was that your first time to ever fly when you went out to to West Texas? First time I, well, the first time I'd been in West Texas, first time I'd been in an airplane, you know, it was interesting. West Texas is really different than the Washington, D.C. area. Oh, God, you know. <laughs> but, no, it was it's a lot of cactus. Mm-hmm. But the people were really nice to us. They took us to a rodeo. I'd never been to a rodeo. They really treated us like that we were their own, you know. And, of course, at the time I went there, I was 19. You were 19 by then. So when you're 19, you know everything. Yes, I, I, I know. I was 19 once. Well, <laughs> but that is not going to be forever, you know. I went up with a pilot. We had a PT-19, which means a primary trainer, number 19. It's a plane built in Hagerstown, Maryland. It's a nice plane. But anyway, we got up and then we were 10,000 feet, and the instructors in the front cockpit, and I'm in the back cockpit. I couldn't talk to him, but he could talk to me. I was thinking to myself, well, anybody be, ought to be able to do this. It's a real piece of cake, you know. So you're 19, and anybody should be able to fly this. That's okay, right. Got it. And so uh, then shortly after that, he said, uh, would you like to try a spin? I didn't even know what a spin was, but I found out very shortly after that. He meant a literal spin. Well, kind of whatever you call it, uh, 
I didn't know what a spin was, which proved to me that I didn't know everything. <laughs> and you found out quickly? I did. Uh, pretty soon, he did the clearing turns. You go make a right turn going around 90 degrees one way, and then you go straight and level, and then uh, left side and go 90 degrees around. I didn't know at the time what that was all about, but I, I thought that was a spin. He'd come up straight and level, and I thought, man, that spin was something else, you know, but uh, we hadn't even started. <laughs> so then the, pretty soon the nose of the plane went up, and the whole plane was shaking like hell, you know, and I thought, it's this guy having a damn heart attack, and I'm in there with him, <laughs> and I don't know anything about this plane. And we don't even have a parachute, and I wouldn't know how to use one, even if we did. So I was learning that I didn't know it all. And so, you were quickly going through all the things that you yeah, didn't know, huh? Yeah, that's right. And so pretty soon the nose went down, and we started spinning around on the right turn spin, headed toward the earth. And I was thinking, nice going, John. First time up, now you're going to die, you know. Because I could see the earth. And I thought to myself, if you think the earth is going to move because you hit it, that's not going to work. You know that. And so I thought I thought for sure I was going to die. But uh, anyway, we were spinning down toward the earth, and he didn't pull it out until he got to about 700 feet. When you go from 10,000 to 700 and he pulled it out, and of course, he got the G's, you know. And I thought it was going to hit, but... Uh, Anyway, he pulled it back up, and we went back up, and I tossed my cookies over the side, you know, just nerves, I guess. Mm -hmm. But uh, he made a believer out of me. But uh, <laughs> when he got back up and he started lying around straight and level, he said, over here we have this, over here we have that. And I was thinking, I don't give a damn what you got anywhere. <laughs> just get me back down to the ground, so... We did get back down to the ground. He landed it, and he got, he got up on the wing and looked down at me. He said, did you get sick? You know, like I'd committed a federal crime. And I shook my head, yes. I, I didn't want to talk to him, but it was I'd toss my cookies all over the side of the plane. And, oh but uh, I thought, I think it's pretty obvious. But anyway, <laughs> I thought... I'll go up again with anybody, but not with that damn guy, you know. He's crazy, but... Uh, Let's stop right there. That is quite a story. Uh, this is Kim Munson. This is the World War II Project. I'm talking with John Henry Hotchkiss II. He is a World War II veteran, and he, he just gave a, a most interesting rendition of what your, your first time in a plane was like. So we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Kim Munson, and this is our World War II Project. I am thrilled to be talking with John Henry Hotchkiss II, World War II veteran. And during the last segment, John, you told us about the first time that you flew. I, I mean, it almost took my breath away just thinking about, you know, headed towards the earth like that. You guys came out of the, the spin, but when we were on break, you mentioned that, that not everybody was as lucky. So what happened to one of your colleagues? Oh, this young man was a very nice person. He's in class 44B, and we weren't close friends, but, I mean, we could have been, but we were pretty busy. And uh, he was went up in a PT-19, and he was practicing spins 
and he went into a spin and never pulled out. And so he went on into the earth and was killed. So and the plane was just tore to pieces once it hit the ground. Mm-hmm. And they would not let us go over to where he hit. I just wondered if they wanted us. We all wanted to be hot pilots. And I don't think they wanted us to get discouraged because they wanted us to do something else, get through the training and mm-hmm. get out there and go to Europe or wherever. But uh, I had I had thought about a lot of it. But you know it's there, and you know it's dangerous, but you want to fly. So It's pretty exhilarating, isn't it, to fly? I don't know. It's still here. It's still in your heart, huh? Yes. That's what I hear. Okay, so now what year was that? When when did you go through that training? Well, it was a class 44, okay. 1944B. Okay. They were in A, B, and C, and, okay. uh, you know, depending on how many classes they were running through. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I could laugh now, but uh, it wasn't a laughing matter then. But I thought then, okay, you're 19, you thought you know it all, and damn near got killed. You know, or you thought you almost got killed. And so from now on, remember, if anybody asks you want you want to do this or that, make damn sure that you know exactly what it's talking about. And say maybe a hundred years from now or or <laughs> next week or whatever. Let me but, get back to you on that, huh? <laughs> okay. What else during training? Is there any other stories that you'd like to share about when you were in training? How about the first time you went up by yourself? Well, I I never went up by myself. I always had an instructor there, and I did have a, a different instructor who was from Georgia and a real nice guy, and he only chewed me out once because I left the blocks in front of the wheels before I started the engines. Okay. You know, I mean, or after I started the engines. There's a certain procedure you go by because right. of safety. Because those were the propellers. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, you'd want to go through those. those. <laughs> well, it's a good, it was a good plane. And then it kind of bothered me that later on in life I saw some of the girls flying those from one place to another, you know, uh-huh. delivering them. You know, they didn't allow them to fly the planes for combat. Right. But they were doing same thing that I wasn't able to do, you know. Okay, so you weren't, so what happened? Why weren't you able to fly? You had a certain amount of time. Okay. And if you didn't proceed correctly in that amount of time, you got washed back and you're out. Mm-hmm. So uh, after I got washed out, they send you to a place where you decide what you want to do. Okay. And I had my choice. I could have been a navigator or, uh, and I thought, if I can't fly the damn thing up the front, you know, you have it here, uh-huh. then uh, I, I don't want to be in the crew. You know, I knew that we'd wind up in something, either you're going to fly by yourself or with a crew. And then I thought about it and I thought, well, hell, you know, after a while I thought, I want to be there with them. Okay. So uh, I decided I wanted to go to aerial gunnery school. And later on, I thought I uh, always I'd have selected navigation. 
you know, because I really was interested in the maps and in the whole structure growing up. I was very good in geography and history, and this was part of the whole thing. I want to be with the guys, you know, just when you're in a crew, I don't know what it is, but I talked to one of the fellows afterwards when I was out, and uh, he had been, he was from Pennsylvania, and he uh, was with a, a crew in a B-26. He was an aerial gunner. We were working at the Smithsonian Institute at the time, and I asked him how he uh, made out, and he said, well, they flew from North Africa, you know, into Southern Europe, and he said he remembers coming up in Italy, mm-hmm. you know, over Italy, and they got close to Rome, and he was Catholic, so he never asked for a pass or anything. So he went and asked for a pass, and they thought he was going psycho, you know, because it's such a change. And, and he said, can you imagine that? They wanted to send me back to the States. I said, you should have taken it. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no, he said, you know the reason I didn't? He said, I was with a crew of guys that I knew were okay, and we were going to be okay together. And he said, I figured if they sent me back to the States, I may never come back to the same crew. Uh-huh. You know, you get you get have closeness in combat, yeah. and you just have a, it's like your brothers, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Band of brothers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you went to aerial gunner school. So, did you become a gunner? Is that what you were? Before I got to go, you know, they come around with a shipping list. I was the last one on the shipping list. Okay. And I went in and tell my buddy, he was from Chicago. I said, they just called my name. He said, I heard that he was laying on his sack, you know. And, the, and he, I said, but they didn't call your name. He said, John, let's be realistic. Some of us got to go and some of us going to stay. You're going and I'm staying, you know. We were pretty close. <laughs> and so he said it like it is, you know. Uh-huh. And he they sent me to England with the 8th Air Force. And, uh, now, we, this was 1944, so was this before D-Day or after D-Day? Uh, that was before D-Day. Okay. And so he was, wrote to me and he's complaining. <laughs> well, first he told me about the good times. He had to go back to Chicago and get his convertible. And he said, guess what? He said, I got a promotion. He said, I'm a corporal now and I'm head of the past, head of the past clerks. And he said, I have one man who helped me, of course. And I thought, yeah, I know who's doing all the work, you know. But he said, <laughs> he said tell me about all the good times, you know. And so uh, when I got a chance, I, I met a man who was invited me to his house. You know, they kind of adopted me. He, he was like a father image and, and his wife was like a mother image that was in southeast London. And uh, so anyway, they had a bunch of girls come in. They were all in service of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I got them, uh, four girls on both sides of me in my picture in the middle, you know, to to send to him. So you sent that to your friend, huh? Yes. <laughs> I said, 
it is very difficult over here because he was telling me we had to live in tents, nothing here but rocks and GIs and aircraft, you know. So I told him, I said, I understand that you'd like, probably like to be with me to help me here because you can see in that picture where the problem I have and they have the dancing pallies in London. And I said, there's at least four or five girls to every guy. And I said, I would begin to wonder whether uh, this is as close to heaven as I'll ever get. <laughs> but, but I knew that would really encourage him. <laughs> <laughs> that he'd want to get over there, huh? <laughs> well, he wasn't going anyplace because yeah. he was with the, the long range who were bombing Japan, you know. Okay. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll kind of cheer him up. (laughs) That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. But uh, he probably knew that I was trying to jerk him around. But (laughs) I know he probably made it through the war, you know. But that was long range going to Japan from Saipan. Okay. uh, So he was like a long range bomber or... No, they had the long-range bombers, but yes. he was based where they were going from. Okay. He captured islands as he went closer to Japan okay. to where they had, had him in, within range. I was happy that, because I, after I came back from Europe, which I didn't think was going to happen, I thought I was going to die over there anyway, but that's why I thought... I'd go to London and enjoy the dance. They were bombing all by us. So you're going to die anyway, so why worry about it, you know? And that was the Battle of Britain when they were bombing London all the well, time, huh? Well, the Battle of Britain was before we got there. Okay, okay. There was, uh, Hitler was trying to, because the Germans had, a, well, Germans had built up prior to what what they were trying to do. And Hitler was calling the shots and some of it. And they had good aircraft, experienced pilots, mm-hmm. the whole bit. That first time they sent 200 bombers over along with the fighter escorts, the first time, the British did have a radar to where they could tell where these bombers were coming to area. Mm-hmm. And so they had men checking that whole coast along France and they could tell when they were coming. So then the planes they had, the fighters, they would wait until they got closer, and then they'd send all these fighters out to try to shoot down as many as they wow. could. Wow. They didn't have what they should have had, mm-hmm. but uh, they did the best they could. With The next time Hitler was... Well, he would get enraged, and he would call the shots. And the next time, they had 400 bombers and fighter escorts, and they shot down a number of those. He figured it would be a one-time thing. didn't work out, so he's going to double it, and and that didn't work out either. Come close. I know when I got to England, we went to Watersham. That was the base I went to. And the British called it, what a shame. But when I could see that when we got there, the buildings that we were supposed to go in, and it rains a lot over there, and they had, the roof was all gone and holes in the wall. And so the 
the uh, Germans did work at a place over mm-hmm, before we ever got there. I don't know. You know, I, I would just cross my fingers because I wasn't too sure we were going to win or lose. And I thought, well, it's going to be a different world if they get mm-hmm. in control because they would have had the British Navy and the German or Wehrmacht, W pronounced the V, uh, the Army. Of course, Luftwaffe. Luft is air and Waffe is a weapon. So is oh, your air weapon is mm-hmm. most of the aircraft there. But they had good planes and they had a lot of pilots. And so, uh, although I think that if it hadn't been for the Russians and the Americans, I think British would going down, you know, they they did the best they could. And so it was a period in there between when Hitler had to do some thinking before he, mm-hmm. he was going to invade or have him invade. And, uh, I don't know. Strategically, when Hitler opened up the, the front, the eastern front with the Russians, um, that that was probably not a good military you know, decision. It's interesting that I had a buddy that uh, he was a couple of years younger than I was. We used to talk about this. He helped me serve papers. I had a paper out, and I paid him. You know, but I said, I'm going to tell you something. I said, Hitler told the Polish people he wanted to annex the Polish quarter. That was the only outlet that they had to dancing in the Baltic Sea. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they wouldn't go around with it, but I don't think he cared because he was going to take it anyway. And so when he did that, that started a, a ball, ball rolling, you know. And I told my buddy, I said, that's going to start another world war. And he said, Hotchkiss now. That was the only time I ever called me by my last name. He said, Get real. We're the bastard generation. It's time for us to step up to the plate. And I said, I suppose so. I could see this whole thing coming. Yeah. They had the weapons, and he—he he was an Austrian, by the way. Right. I went to—I went to uh, with my wife. It's right across the Inn River. We did ask where he was born. Of course, nobody was happy with him to begin with but uh but they talked to my wife and she told her showed me and I and I thought I, I wanted to see what kind of man was this that had all those people killed yeah John Hotchkiss let's stop right there let's go to break when we come back let's continue with your story this is Kim Munson it's the our World War II project I'm talking with World War II veteran John Henry Hotchkiss the second we'll be right back Hey, welcome back. This is Kim Munson. This is the World War II Project, and thrilled and honored to be talking with World War II veteran John Henry Hotchkiss II. And fascinating stories, John. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, really enjoying that. When, before we went to break, you said that you and your wife had been in Europe and that you uh, were over where purportedly Hitler had been born, and, and you just you were inquisitive about what kind of a man would do this yeah. kind of stuff. Oh. I did want to see him because I, I could tell that nobody acts like they knew Hitler. He, he was an Austrian, mm-hmm. and he was a real 
so-and-so, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, he worked his way up to uh, get the support of the Army, Navy, and the Air Force. I promised them that they would get, you know, extra money and all this to build up their forces. And uh, once he got it in power, then instead of saying Deutschland über alles, that starts saying Heil Hitler, that means Hail Hitler. Mm -hmm. So he was like a god, you know, Mm -hmm. or acted like he was a god, but Mm -hmm. he was something else. But anyway, Mm -hmm. but uh, I don't know, you know, and to think about all those people were sent to the, the chambers, gas chambers, and I went there. I didn't intend to go there, but my wife's hometown, and we weren't supposed to be in that part of Germany. I was when it was East Germany, and I said the wrong thing when I went through the German passport. Yeah. You know, they take your passport, and then there's about six other guys that you have to talk to. And I said something to this one. I said, East Germany, he said, oh, God, you think he's Nikita Khrushchev? You know, he said, there is no East Germany in the pounding on the table. He said, this is Deutsche Democratic Republic. And so I said, you know, I'm so happy that you explained that to me. And I figured, well, he'll probably think I'm a dumb American. Uh-huh. So I don't want to rock the uh, boat, huh? No, no, I want to rock the boat because... My wife wanted to go to where she grew up. Okay. And when they divided Germany, that was in East Germany. Okay. And we weren't allowed to do, go anywhere. Well, we said, and I had to put up money and all this stuff in Washington, D.C. Uh, at one of the other embassies that was handling that. And uh, so anyway, we were going to go to Leipzig, which is a fairly large city. It's right close to the Polish border. Okay. We did go there. The reason we, it was a trade, they, they called it the Leipzig or Mesa. Well, they, that was a trade uh, program for people. And so we're supposed to be going to the program or the, the you know, mm-hmm. that was our purpose. So, but but uh, that, that was not, you're supposed to take one road, go straight there and do this and that and the other. And so my wife said she'd like to go see where she grew up. And I thought, well, you know what mama wants, mama gets, you know. So <laughs> I thought, if I don't do that, then, you know, uh, I'll hear about it the rest of my life, you know. But uh, anyway, we went there and uh, we talked to, she talked to the people there. because she's from there. She had to be, she could talk exactly like they did and she i remember it got dark and we were of course oh john you know the heat since i know everything oh i uh, thought you figured out when you were 19 you didn't know everything well <laughs> well i i thought well we need a place to stay and i'm looking for a howard johnson which they don't have yeah. anything like that we're not even supposed to be there in there and she stopped this old man on the walking along with his hat and his feather and all this. And he he talked to her, and, and uh, we stopped the car and talked to her. And I think he could have talked all night to her, you know, but uh, uh, she was from there. And so he told us about a place where we could probably stay, and that's when we 
uh, he gave us gave my wife directions, and she gave me directions, and it drove up to this forest. It's the green heart of Germany, and this forest, and that's where all the poets and everybody went, you know, for vacations. Mm-hmm. And uh, that happened to be a place where they put one of the camps, Buchenwald, and uh, one of the death camps. Anyway, so we went up, and my wife said to turn into the forest there. And I turned in, and we drove down about, uh, I'd say, about uh, two miles, and I saw this Russian tank over on the left-hand side, and I thought, boy, John, you know <laughs> you know how to get in the mud, don't you? Yeah. But uh, anyway, it, I didn't see any sign of life there. They must have been sleeping. But uh, so I said, well, I don't know, make up your stories. You're driving along, not that it's going to work. But uh, it may not be believed. But anyway, uh, just keep driving like you know what you're doing. <laughs> and and it went another couple miles, and there's another Russian tank on the other side. The same tank is dark, you know. So they must have been resting. I thought, well, I'd like to know how I'm going to get out of this one. But, uh, you know, but uh, anyway... Pretty soon, we came to a place where there's a sign, hotel. Now, it's the same letters that you'd find in in English. And I said, oh, there's a place. And so my wife, we drove up there, and my wife went in, brick building. She went in and asked them if they had room for two people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Friday, you know. And uh, that's where we stayed. It wasn't too great but that was had been the administration building for the for the camp what year was that do you remember what year that was john i don't know <laughs> i i don't remember but uh it was uh and i was thinking you know because uh, i i call my uh lady does my income tax this morning and i asked her i said what was the name of the town that johanna grew up in, because I, I remember that like I thought I'd know it the rest of my mm-hmm. life, but I, I've lost it, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, they gave me a little map, you know, that, that at work there, I asked him if he had a, a map of Germany, well, he brought me a, one that's not very big, and, and I put that in under the enlarger, and I still couldn't see, I know approximately where it was, but anyway... In the morning, it wasn't that much great a place, but it was a place to sleep. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, we got up. We had our sister's car, had West German tags on it. And uh, so I went down to the, well, we call it the filling station, but while I was pumping benzene or gasoline, I looked down the road there, and there's there's the gates of that camp with the barbed wire and the towers and all that. And I thought, you're in the wrong neighborhood, you know. But uh, anyway, I said to the guy that was there, I said, was it Das? He said, oh, that's his Buchenwald. I know what Buchenwald was. But uh, we'd stayed there all night, you know, in one of the other buildings. Mm -hmm. And I told my wife, I said, God help us from here on. You know, we were deep. You know, you were yeah, well into in, into that. 
How did you meet your wife? Well, that was kind of interesting, too. Uh, I was working for United Airlines. And I did work for United for 60 years and seven months. But during that time, they bought 58 aircraft, turboprops, the first ones in North America, from the British. And so uh, I was on an off shift, but I was going to go to Days to go to the school that they had. And that meant I had evenings off. And so, uh, and and part of the days too, you know. And I went down to uh, where my mother worked in a department store, and she wanted me to come down and take her to lunch. Well, I went down and I saw this young lady there. She looked unhappy, and or at least that's my story. So I got acquainted with her, and I said, uh, and I was going to be all Saturday, so I asked her, she liked to go to a dance, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fleet club. And we had a club just south of the airport there in Virginia. She said uh, she wasn't doing anything, so we did go out. And the time that I was going to school, I could see her. And uh, I remember that when I went over to where she was living, she was dolled up like a queen, you know, but uh, <laughs> I thought... I remember those blue sandals she had on there. But uh, anyway, then when I went back on my regular shift, she didn't see me for a while. She she told somebody, I didn't know what happened to him, you know. But uh, anyway, we got back together, and it wasn't too long. She was talking about going back to Germany, and I said, hey, you don't want to do that, you know. I mean... I had an interest <laughs> uh-huh. to defend, too, but uh, while she was working, while she was working uh, at the department store, this uh, multimillionaire come down, and he was uh, supposedly looking for curtains and drapes and all that. He didn't know anything about it, or at least he didn't said he didn't. But uh, anyway, so he offered her a job at his place in, in Maryland there. And so she told me, she said, what do you think about this? And uh, she told me about the job he offered and all this. It was a motherless home. And uh, I think it, the mother had committed suicide, according to people around there. I wasn't there when that took place. But anyway, uh, my first action was, how old is this damn guy, you know? <laughs> Oh, he was on my list already. Sure. And so she said, oh, he was around the same age she was, and the same age I was, you know. And I said, well, I want to tell you something. You don't want to make a move unless I talk to him. I said, I want to talk to him, you know. And so she said, you know, that's so unusual. She said, he wants to talk to you too, you know. And I said... No problem, you know. So I went out to his place, and uh, he was uh, vice president in Geico. One of the vice presidents, his father started Geico, which he was, his father was a nice old man, you know. And uh, so I went out, and and when he was was talking to him about the, the job he offered her, 
And I said, so what's the story, you know? And, and he said, well, you could have, she could have an apartment here. And I said, and it won't be just her. It will be John and Johanna, you know? And I said, I want to tell you something else. I said, I know you drink a lot. And I said, uh, you've already come in one time when I was working at uh, at United. He, and later on, he drank and he trying to fix something to eat, you know, in the kitchen. And that was right before I come home. And he caught on fire and he had bombed out, you know, in his bedroom upstairs. And uh, I said, you know, I said, I'm going to tell you something. Don't ever try to come through the window. I said, they got a doorbell there. I'm acting like it's not his house, you know. Yeah. I said, you know how to use a damn doorbell, you know. And I said, if you want to try to come through the window, just be prepared to go to heaven because John Baby is not going to let anybody come in there that house when you got a son sleeping upstairs in your bedroom. I said, you know, I said, you're not a dummy. And I said, for one thing, I said, you got one son. You got no wife unless you get another wife and have a son. But I said, somebody come in there, grab him and take off and send you a note. And you would either pay it or you wouldn't pay it. But either way, you wouldn't get your son back. And I said, nobody is going to touch that boy and get away with it. I said, if they come through the window or even part way, I'll help them the rest of the way, and then they'll die, you know. John. Well, I was a policeman, and, you know, at one point, and I thought, some people you have to talk turkey to. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, John, we are just about out of time, but okay. I assume you must have asked Joanna to get married and all oh, that, yeah. right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and then they had a uh, bar right right downstairs there with a rec room and all that, right next to our apartment. Remember that one night he had one of his buddies from Texas there, and they were, I guess, drinking, and, and so I uh, heard woman scream, you know, I just got in bed, you know, and my wife got upset, and she said, you better go out there and see what's going on. I said, I hope they kill themselves, you know, but uh, uh, anyway, she said, please go out there and see what's going on. So I was aggravated when I got up out of bed and went out there, and I said, what is the story, you know, and the lady said, uh, well, I guess he, she got hit by the guy she was with, mm. one of his hanger-ons, I call him, but uh-huh. anybody's got a lot of money. So it's, uh, and it, so she said, I want to get a cab. And he mouthed off. He said, she's not going to get a cab. Oh, that was wrong. You know, I said, the lady asked for a cab. She's going to get a cab. So he's standing in front of me, you know, telling me, what to do, I was saying, and I said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to call a cab, and I'd appreciate if you just step aside, you know. And he said, well, you don't have to get upset about it. I said, don't tell me you don't have to get upset. 
I was upset before I come out here. And I said, I said, you can stand there in my way, and you're going to be laying on the damn floor very shortly. I said, so get out of my way. I'm going up and calling the cab. Then when the cab comes, you can come up and pay him so that this lady's fair so she can go home. I said, I hope that makes it clear, you know, because I, I was, I thought. It's not it is proving that chivalry is not dead. John Hotkiss, this has been absolutely fascinating. Well, Thank you so much. Anyway, I thought I did somebody a good deed, you know, but that's the way it was, you know. And I told him, I said, if my wife's boss wants us to move out of here, we're out of here tomorrow. I knew damn well he didn't have any choice because he had her doing everything, cooking and, and taking care of her son or his son. And... uh and she did the shopping. Yeah. I told her at one time, you know, he, he's the tightest son of a bitch I ever met. But anyway, we were eating breakfast, he and I, in the kitchen, and discussing things. And of course, usually we we're in an argument. But, uh, you know, he said, you know, Johanna, you ought to try this different kind of milk, you know. He could tell you, the only man I ever met that could tell you the price of something. Oh, yeah. That you know, most guys go in and get whatever they want. Right. Women will go look at the price. Right. But anyway, so he's well, John. You know what? We've got to stop. We are out of time. But okay. this has just been awesome. So, John Henry Hotkiss the second World War II veteran. Thank you so much for sharing these stories with us. I greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. This is Kim Munson signing off. Be sure and tune in same time, same place next week. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Emeritchick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.